Lifestyle Matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmali, my co-host here, filling in for Dave Popwich. Rob Gay, Rob, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank Good you for back. replacing Dave for this weekend. Big shoes? He's got big shoes. <laughs> Have you seen his shoes, though? He's, it's, his style has changed. They're getting a little casual? They're getting a little bit more casual. I think he's... I think he'd rather be in his golf shoes, wouldn't he? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think, um, I think a lot of people would rather be golfing right now. We've had a very interesting week in the markets. There's been a lot going on, and I know you took the short straw this week. You were up early doing all the media, covering all the events, and there's been a ton of events this week. And, and the end of the week went, went a little sour there, and there's a lot of commentary. Yeah. ECB, UK rates, maybe give us a couple of highlights that drove the, mar- drove the market south. Yeah, so if we look at this week, and let's even go month to date, down mm. about 5% on the major indexes in Canada and the United States. Europe had a bit of a hit there as well. Asia got a, hit, a bit of a hit there. Um, the big catalyst, I think, was the Federal Reserve and their announcement, uh, along with the European Central Bank and the UK Central Bank, uh, talking about how they're raising interest rates by 50 basis points, or half, one half of 1%. The communication is what kind of got people thinking. The communication of, well, he didn't rule out, and he meaning the the chair of Federal Reserve, didn't rule out um, recession. Mm -hmm. Um, And they've increased their target range of how much more they can increase interest rates by about a half a percent. Okay, So there's still more room to go up. And then all three central bankers basically confirmed that we're going to be in higher interest rates longer. Mm-hmm. That we're not going to cut interest rates anytime soon. Meaning 2023. And when, we, when you and I sat down in the morning after the, the, the delivery of the UK and the ECB's commentary, we, we were looking at each other like, this isn't news. Mm-hmm. There's nothing new about this. And if you go back, let's take the S&P 500 as a bit of a bellwether. There has been absolutely no movement if you, if you left the, the, the earth on June 15th mm-hmm. and came back December 15th, the S&P 500 is the exact same value. Right. Nothing's changed. And that's pretty much what the commentary should have just said. Nothing's changed. We're still raising interest rates. Yes, inflation is lower Yes, we're moving in the right direction. Yes, the economy is slowing down. That's what we expected. So why are you reacting so negatively to this? Hmm. When I looked at the chart of the S&P 500, and you and I did this on Friday, and I said, look at this chart. <laughs> and I'm laughing because we were talking about my golf game. <laughs> and, and you can see that if you look at the way Faisal golfs, sometimes he'll hook, sometimes he'll slice, he'll, he'll over putt, it goes left, right, <laughs> And literally, within a matter of a few strokes, he's at the same spot he started off at. That's exactly what happened in the market. And, and, it, and it just surprises me that so many people thought, we're going to have a recovery in the economy in 2023. Interest rates are going to be cut. We've never said that on our team. Mm-hmm. We've never said there's going to be a recovery and interest rates are going to go down in 2023. We've always said, we're most likely going to a recession. Right. It's not going to be a deep recession. It's going to be a shallow recession. And guess what the the pundits of the media are now talking about? A shallow recession. Shallow, right? Soft landing. Soft landing. And that's, 
I'm surprised that people are surprised. This isn't news. No. This just, is June written all over again. No, just like your, your golf game. I mean, we're, not, we're not surprised. <laughs> There's nothing great about it. Live golf is not calling and recruiting. <laughs> <laughs> right. so, so I think this is where the, the understanding of the average investor, right. the, the, your portfolio shouldn't be moving in a big rally because you think things are going to get better sooner. There, there isn't a rollover. Now, there's risk to the downside, absolutely. But in this, uh, in this whole volatile piece, it's just like my golf game. Once in a while, you kind of figure out how to take a better shot. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing with what's happening in the market. These investments, these securities, these companies, some of them have been beaten up unfairly. And there's the opportunity. And... You and I were sitting down looking at every opportunity out there based on our, 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 our quant factors, and we're pulling up going, that shouldn't happen, that shouldn't happen. Right. The market's overshooting this. They're playing my golf game. <laughs> They're playing my golf game. And I think there's an opportunity now for, as long as you understand <laughs> that this part of the portfolio, when you're owning equities, is not designed for income. It's designed for capital growth. Growth of, of your dividends, growth of your portfolio over time. And I think that's where um, when we hear more and more people are using dividends to pay for their cash flow in their retirement, that's a big problem. Right. But when you're looking at this as part of your growth, this is an opportunity. It'll, it's, a, it's a moment in time that we're going to get through. It's not going to be easy. People will lose jobs. Companies will go bankrupt. But we're going to evolve from this. And the short-term overreaction is a good point on the term soft landing. Again, we go back to recession because the overreaction, right, the long shot missing the hole is, oh, it's deep recession, right? And the two things that unemployment and then slowdown on on GDP or company growth is the two things that that everyone is overreacting to. Watch what's going to happen first quarter 2023. Right you're going to hear more and more headlines about we're now going into a deep recession. Watch that commentary. You're going to see the shift because now what's the news to talk about? Right. We're slowing down. That's yesterday's news. That's not today. Jobs are being cut. People are getting laid off. That's yesterday's news. That's not today. It's happening. We know it's happening. So what else do you put to make the headline to keep that person listening to your media outlet Give the headline of the worst-case scenario. Once rates go, yes, you're correct. It's going to be focused right? quarter one, 2023. And to the production team, mark this down. Just in case it comes out to the way I'm saying it, we can recall on this and say, look, in the first quarter, 2023, you're going to see more pundits of the media going to come out and say, deep recession, deep recession, deep recession. And watch how the markets will react. And that's when it's the opportune time. Opportunity. Yep. And so understand that, that people are going to overshoot. They're going to play the markets like Faisal plays golf. If you can understand that, <laughs> you go, okay, he gets a couple of good shots now and then in golf. The market will correct itself. Right. It will get into the right spot. There, it is going to recover. And, and I think people are going to now focus on that for the for the 2023. I also want people to think about... Um, some key dates that are coming out in, t- in 2023 that we should really take notice of. 
and and this is more for the investor and from a tax perspective. So, um, Rob, I want to I want to kind of get your commentary on the first one. January first is a very important date, not because it's the new calendar year, but because it's also the new calendar year where your TFSA contribution can go in. You got it. And there's an increase in your TFSA contribution. 6500 right? So now we get to in, uh, put more into our TFSA, so be aware of that. And if you took money out in 2022 from your TFSA, January 1st is the date you can put more money back in. You get that back. And remember the commentary we were talking about what the markets are going to be doing and what the, what the, uh, uh, the media is going to be talking about. January 1st sounds like a good date to think about when it comes to making a contribution and looking at investing. Reset. Tax-free growth. Absolutely. Yeah. March 1st is the RRSP deadline. We kind of kind of trying to figure out what day it is. Is it 28th of February, the 1st of March? It's the 1st of March. That's when we have to figure out, for many Canadians, is it better to put in your RSP or your TFSA? So get that analysis done before that date so you can make that contribution before March the 1st. Here's a new one I think that people need to kind of... Um, be aware, if you are under the age of 40, or if you have family members who are over the age of 18 but under 40, starting April 1st, it's no April Fool's joke here, it's the first home savings account. These are for first-time home buyers. You can put eight up to $40,000 or $8,000 per year towards a home with no tax on the contributions or withdrawals. Um, this is, there's some perks, some tax perks to it as well. It is designed to help young Canadians buy their first home. <coughs> Lots of flexibility. Think about how many Canadians who are approaching or living in retirement are looking at helping their children, their adult children, buy their first home. They will give them money, they will co-sign, they will borrow from their lines of credits, Use this opportunity starting April 1st to help your kids if you're going to help your kids. Mm-hmm. There's some benefits. And here's why I, I say this. In order for a person approaching or living in retirement to help their adult children, they first have to earn the income, pay tax on the income, then give the, in- the money to their child. Here's an opportunity you can take the tax person out of the way. The tax man's gone. <coughs> yep. So April 1st. Is a very important date to remember if you're planning on helping your adult child or if you are between the ages of 18 and 40 to help yourself get your first home. Lots of combos. Okay. The one that always surprises people every year, and people scramble, ask our our friends in the accounting world, April 30th is a tax deadline. (laughs) Okay. There's some key things you got to do for the rest of this year, so you're ready for next year, but April 30th. And now interest rates have gone up, so your penalty... The interest you have to pay if you file late and owe taxes is going to go up. And then you have to figure out that that penalty on top of it and then make that payment. Please, if you are in a position of owing to CRA, file by April 30th, please. I heard they're hiring more auditors. So I think it's a good I think they've hired quite a bit. (laughs) And they've got a billion dollars more budget. Guess what do you think they're going to do with that budget, Right. People are going to ask, taxpayers are going to ask, we've given a billion dollars of taxpayer money to help the ta- revenue agency. What's the return on our investment? Well, collecting more tax is the return on investment. Rob, we have a reoccurring guest, mm-hmm. um, one of the most sought after 
right now with all the geopolitical issues going on, when you see all the coverage and all the attention he's getting on social media, conventional media, I'm glad we got him on our show again. I want to take one key piece from his book as a theme that I got out of it, and I want people to think about this, goodbye globalization. So the world's getting smaller. The world's getting, is it smaller or we're just spreading apart? So this is what we're, we're going to chat about. Fair. I want to bring our reoccurring guest, Peter Zine, global, uh, sorry, geopolitical analyst, author of The End of the World is Just the Beginning. Peter, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Peter, I'll just, uh, I'll, so I'll re-say the title just for the listeners. The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. So there's a lot of events that you talk to that are going to impact us. Maybe you can give us some key main themes that you cover in that book. The extraordinarily short version is that the, the world that we understand, the globalized world, uh, was always artificial. It used to be before World War II, if you had iron ore and coal and food and oil, that you could make something of yourself and maybe expand an empire. But if you didn't have those four things, odds are you were a colony. But with the post-war settlement, the Americans used their navy to patrol the global ocean so that anyone could go anywhere and access any market. And in doing so, you no longer needed everything. You just needed one of those things. And you could trade for what you didn't have. That lasted until 1992 when the Americans had been breaking away from it ever so slightly year by year by year. And now we're done. Um, But there's also a demographic side to this, because when you live on a farm, you have as many kids as you can because they're free labor. But when you industrialize, and we all started industrializing in 1945, you also urbanize. And when you move into a condo in a city, kids are no longer free labor. They're the biggest expense you have. And adults aren't stupid, so we had fewer of them. If you fast forward that 75 years, it's not that the world is running out of children. That happened 30, 40 years ago. The world is now running out of working age adults. And the 2020s are the leading edge of the advanced world aging into mass obsolescence. You can't have globalization without the physical safety that comes that require is required for trade, and you certainly can't have it without production and consumption. So, when you look at the, that as a demographic issue, the shift that's happened over the decades, uh, there's a shift happening in North America, and you identify that to us. I'd say a few years ago. And you said, Faisal, watch out for Mexico. Uh, We've spent so much time and energy looking at China. We've spent so much time and energy looking at Asia and abroad. Uh, But you're saying, hey, you know, Mexico is America's China. What do you mean about that, by by saying that? Uh, Well, China's not going to exist as a country. Uh, by the end of the decade. Their demographics are the fastest aging in the world. Uh, They have already aged past, on average, the United States. And with the data revisions that we're getting month by month by month, it looks like the Chinese overcounted their population by 100 million people. And all of the missing millions are aged uh, 40 and under. So, you know, the people who would have the kids. So it's not even statistically possible for China to survive the first half of this century as an ethnicity, much less as a country. Uh, Mexico is night and day different. Mexico didn't begin their industrialization process until the 90s. And so their birth rate only recently started to drop just in the last 25 years. So if Mexico continues to age at the rate that it's going, it is still going to be one of the youngest countries in the world by 2050. Uh, And in that sort of environment, if you add in 
the manufacturing and the infrastructure links to the southern United States, specifically Texas, you know, once you step back and kind of get out of your own head and look at the math, if you look at the difference between the value of the products that Mexico imports versus the value of the products that they export, like the raw commodities that go into their manufacturing versus their finished exports, they are already the world's highest valued economy. And they've got a labor force that is larger and better trained than the entirety of Central Europe. And courtesy of NAFTA, we've got unrestricted access. Uh, they uh, became America's largest trading partner first in 2019, and we had all our COVID funding games. They got that position back in 2021, and it's a position that they will not give up in our lives. How does this impact Canada? With knowing that uh, Mexico being where they're at geographically, demographically, there's a threat, in my opinion, of Canada losing some sort of stability, clout, um, competition because of Mexico. Tell us your thoughts on how Mexico's rise could be Canada's demise. Well, let me give you the good first. So obviously Canada is one of the signatories, signatories to NAFTA too. And so it has the same access to the American and Mexican market from a legal point of view uh, as Mexicans do to Canada and the United States. So, you know, the hard part is done. Uh, Mexico, like Canada, both most of their trade is with the U.S. And in a world where global trade links are breaking down, you already have privileged access to the one market that is still consumption driven and is still robust. So that, that's the good point. So, you know, even in the worst case scenario, you're in the best bucket you can be in. Now the downside. On a work per hour basis, the Mexican laborer is already more efficient than the Canadian labor. And Canadian labor costs a little bit more than American labor, even with the recent declines in the Canadian dollar. And as a rule, Canadian energy costs more than American energy, so you also have an input problem. So staying as a major player in the manufacturing sector, especially when you're talking about things like aerospace, where the United States is getting more protection, it's not less, is going to become more of a problem moving forward. And there's no easy fix for that because the sort of structural reforms that Canada would need to do are ones that most Canadians consider being against the social contract. There's also the immigration issue. Canada is the only country in the world that has made and managed to integrate immigration into their identity successfully on an ongoing basis. In the United States, it comes and goes. With Canada, it's pretty much every single year. But that does put you on a bit of a treadmill. Because as long as you're bringing in people who are in their 30s and 40s, because you really don't walk to Canada from the Eastern Hemisphere, you're coming with a skill set. And that's great, because it means you don't have to pay for their education. But it also means they only have so much time to pay taxes before they retire. Whereas in the United States, the average age of an inward migrant historically has been 18 because people walk from Mexico. So someone else pays for their high school, but then we get them their entire working lives. You only guys only get about half of that. What we've seen in the last few years is that the treadmill is breaking down because we're getting a lot of people, particularly from China, who are coming and buying property and dropping assets, but they don't actually settle and work. So you're getting all the financial and the real estate distortions without the labor force that is then necessary to round out the economy in the back end, which is the primary reason why on January 1, the Trudeau government is canceling uh, future sales for foreign purchases of Canadian property to try to shift, shift that distortion into a less problematic sector. 
remains to be seen whether that's going to work. One thing that we always talk about globally, politically, economically, as investors, is China versus United States. Who is the global superpower? Let's take, let's put the question out to Peter because I'm sure he has an interesting take on this. Peter, the roles of China, United States on a global scale, what do you think is going to happen there? Oh, I think we're seeing the beginning of the end of the Chinese system right now. Uh, I've never been a China bull. I mean, yes, they are a massive assembly location, and I don't mean to suggest that that's irrelevant, but there's nothing about the Chinese economy in its current form that can be sustained without direct and ongoing American support. Port. It's not just an issue of the United States stepping back and letting things go. So let me, let me just go through a few things. Uh, let's start with semiconductors. They don't make the high-end chips. They don't make the low, the medium-quality chips. They only make the low-end chips, and only with equipment, tools, and software that are imported. And the quality checks are done by staff that are not Chinese, because the Chinese don't have the skill at the technical education uh, in order to do that themselves. And so when the Biden administration last month said no more equipment, no more tools, no more software, and no more Americans who are the bulk of the foreigners in the sector, the Chinese semiconductor sector basically just died, especially on the higher end. And that takes everything that comes with it, whether it's AI or hypersonics. Uh, Let's talk energy. The Chinese are technologically incompetent when it comes to energy production, and they have been dealing with declining fields for decades, and it's getting to the point that things are going very close to zero. They're down to less than 4 million barrels a day. It's like one-third of their peak. So they're desperate to buy cheap steel to get technologies that allow them to enhance their oil recovery. But it doesn't work that way. You design the technologies around the geology, not the other way around. And so even with the shale technologies they've been able to buy, even with the unconventional technologies for, say, um, tar sands that they've bought from Alberta, they're completely unapplicable to the Chinese situation. And even in the offshore and say the South China Sea, which is very, very shallow, they don't know how to operate there without extensive support from foreign partners. And so they're left importing three quarters of their energy, mostly from the Persian Gulf, but their ships can't get that far. So they're dependent upon the US Navy to provide the naval support to make it work. And it's the same for manufacturing because they are not their own end market. They no longer have people in their 20s and their 30s to do the consumption. They have to sell to the wider world for that. Their single largest markets are the European Union and the United States, which they no longer have good relations with. So there's not a single aspect of this story that is self-sustaining. And now that we're dealing with the demographic collapse, there's nothing about this that is going to last the decade. So, so Peter, the, the, the argument that keeps on going back and forth is that U.S. and China are so dependent on each other. One supplies uh, um, the materials, the access, the market itself, the other supplies the product. So pretty much go through anything through Walmart and it's made in China pretty much. So there's an intradependency between the two nations. Um, when, with your thesis on the demise of China, do you see that? still occurring? Do you see that breaking down? And then how does that impact other countries around the world like Canada? Sure. So the Chinese dependent upon the United States is total. If the United States disappeared for whatever reason uh, tomorrow, the Chinese system would collapse within a matter of months. That doesn't mean that the Americans don't have exposure. And I would say that there's kind of three things to look at. 
The first is materials processing. Whether it's lithium or cobalt or copper, a lot of the world's raw materials processing is done in China because the Chinese can do that by themselves. In most cases, we're talking like 1910s to 1930s technology. So it's not difficult. It's not even expensive, but it does take one to three years based on the material to build out the physical infrastructure somewhere else. And the more difficult of those processes is rare earth processing. And we showed ourselves 10 years ago that we can do it. So when the Chinese 10 years ago started to threaten the Japanese with a rare earth cutoff, the Malaysians, the French, the Americans, the Australians all built out REE processing themselves. And it's now in place. So I'm really not worried about that. That can be done for copper. That can be done for cobalt and all the others. But it takes time and effort. And we're probably, you know, capitalists. So we're not probably going to spend the money on that until we see a problem. We're not there yet. So there is a chance for a midterm shortage. Uh, number two, manufacturing in general. As I mentioned, China is the world assembly superpower. But there is nothing about assembly that requires any meaningful technology that doesn't exist already in a place like, say, Argentina or Mexico. So that all can be moved as well. And that's actually a little bit more expensive than, say, the materials processing. But you need a fingers and eyes situation. The thing that most people have missed is that because of the demographic aging in China, your average Mexican worker is now one third the cost of the Chinese worker, but has a better skill set. So we haven't seen a single offshoring, reshoring, friendshoring, whatever you want to call it, from China to somewhere in the Western Hemisphere in the last three years where the new process was more expensive than the old process. Shorter supply chains, closer to the end consumer, uses less energy, is greener, good, 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 good. The process where we're gonna face the biggest pressure is electronics. A good electronics sector requires multiple labor pools because the person who does the die cast is not the person who uh, forges the copper and then makes the wire and then makes the wiring harness and then does the software, does the semiconductor. You, you need different labor pools for all of that and you want them in relative close proximity. And in this, the East Asian rim is the best in the world. And if that breaks down, the only place in the, in the American-centric model where this works is the U.S.-Mexico border. And we're going to need like 2 million Americans and Mexicans working in just this one subsector. And it's not clear that either country can easily provide that volume of labor on a reasonable time frame. So when you're talking about things that beep, that is where the pressure is going to be moving forward. We've only got a couple of minutes before we have to go to commercial break. Rob, he mentioned uh, green and green energy. That's uh, a big um, eye-opener for Alberta. Yep. Um, let's just go right into it. Peter, how does the whole green tech revolution change happening going to impact Alberta and then Canada as a, as a larger, larger piece? Uh, well, the biggest problem that entire space is going to get hit with is uh, material supply. Uh, the copper, the lithium, the zinc, the cobalt, all of those things uh, are not in existence globally in the volumes that we need to a global energy transmission transition. 
and especially if we lose the Chinese and the Russians more or less at the same time, we're not going to be able to address everything that we're after. Now, that said, there are parts of the world that have excellent wind and solar resources. Calgary is one of those. Uh, Alberta is in the Great Plains, just like Texas and Iowa. It has fantastic wind potential. And so if we're moving into a world where we can't do this everywhere at scale because of materials constraints, we are then going to focus on the places that we can do it well. Alberta's one of those, but Germany's not. Toronto's not. New York's not. So just like Texas, Alberta's future is probably going to be an all-of-the-above energy approach, whereas your primary critics and markets are going to be a none-of-the-above energy approach. And that's going to be a very different political conversation. That's going to be a big change happening. We're looking forward to seeing more and more of that information. Uh, Peter, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're going to bring you back and get more of your take on this because we love listening to you. And, and if anybody's looking at uh, grabbing a copy of his book, reach out to us at morethemoneyradio.com. Reach out to contact us and we'll connect you uh, with Peter's book and opportunity. We will give one free copy to you. If you reach out to us, we'll get you a free copy of his book. The rest of you, you got to go on and pick it up because uh, this guy's got some great stuff to say. Uh, you know, with two weeks left, Rob. Not long. Not long. Um, people are going to start to scramble. People mm-hmm. are going to go, okay, I need to save some money on taxes. You know, we need to make sure that we've got our, our opportunities here, but we want to bring our tax expert in. We've got Jamie, Jamie Golenbeck. He's the head of tax at CIBC, Private Wealth Management. Jamie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's, let's put the, you on the spot. You get a phone call from a, from a client at CIBC, and they say, I've only got two weeks left, Jamie. I need to save on taxes. Give me your best tax tips that we can have for the last two weeks of the year. Yeah, well, I think the big big one, especially for 2022, of course, is tax loss selling, which is the act of selling an equity or a mutual fund that's really gone down in value that I think is probably not going to recover, at least any time in the near future, to be able to use that capital loss. First of all, you can use that loss against any capital gains that you had in 2022, including those year-end distributions if you have mutual funds. But the other important thing to remember is that you can go back three years. So that's back to 2019, 2020, and 2021. And if you reported capital gains in those years, you can take a loss from this year, as long as you realize it before the end of the year, and take that and recapture capital gains tax paid in those three years. And remember that this is your last chance in the next two weeks to actually get back any 2019 capital gains tax. Because come Jan 1st, 2023, 2019 now falls off the table. It's done. It's closed. It's sealed, delivered. Nothing you can do. So this is really your big chance to take a look at your 2019 return. Go to Schedule 3. Are there any capital gains there? Go to the tax return itself. Did you report any capital gains distributions from mutual funds or seg funds? And if so, this is the year. Take a quick look at that portfolio over the next couple of weeks and see if there's an opportunity there. Remember, though, that this year, the trade deadline for publicly traded securities, December 28th. That's because the stock market is closed on Saturday the 31st, and you want it to settle by the end of the year. So December 28th, your trade date to get that trade done, to take that loss, and then use it this year. You must use it this year's first. And then, of course, you have that opportunity to go back up to three calendar years. So, Jamie, let's, let's kind of touch on the past three calendar years. Here's where the confusion lies with some of the people in the investment community. If you have a capital loss, you're bringing back the previous three years because you have no capital gains in the current calendar year. 
in 2019, your income tax rate was lower than in 2022 or 2021 or 2020. Do you get to choose which year you want to offset those capital losses to which capital gains? Or does it automatically go to 2019? Yeah, so you actually have to choose which of those three years. You don't have a choice for the current year. So the law says that you must net any losses in 2022 against gains in 2022. Only if you have a net loss this year in 2022, do you have that choice of carrying back to any of those three years. And you're absolutely right. I mean, that's a great planning point. Uh, If your income really does vary between those three years, you probably want to choose the year Uh, in which the tax rate is the highest. That being said, I wouldn't be so quick to brush off 2019, no matter what your tax rate is, right? Because those fall off the table. Like you're never going to get that money back ever after this year, right? So I don't know, I might go back to 2019 and take that and then hope that if I have some more losses, I can go back and get 2020, 2021. Uh, But if I have no losses, then you're right. Maybe this is the one-time opportunity to choose among those three years if you're confident that you're never going to have any more losses in the next year or two uh, to be able to go back to those other two years. Fantastic. Okay. Um, The opportunity for those who didn't have capital gains in the past three years but have a capital loss this year, Rob, is to carry forward those capital losses in the future to offset any future capital gains. I think that's a, that's a big piece. But in our portfolio, for example, we we made a, a bunch of gains, unrealized Last gains, years, yeah. 2019, 2020 with the pandemic starting. And then we realized them in 2021. And that was, oh my God, we had this big capital gain. And so now that we have some capital losses, we can realize this calendar year, we can go back net losses, that is, we can go back uh, to 2021 or previous two years after that, uh, before that, just so we can offset. So it's a, it comes down to a bit more of hands-on. When you're speaking to clients, Rob, really quickly, what are, what are the things that you're kind of giving them a heads up on as we hit the last two weeks? Well, I think that, that's a big one, right? Because we did have a lot of those gains. So it's, it's uh, educating right? yep. and saying, hey, this is, um, right, we had those gains, but let's go back and recoup some of those. <laughs> we had some big tax years on some income. The other one that uh, I'm talking about uh, is with a few clients on charitable giving, right? We've been talking about that last couple of weeks on uh, the benefits. And Jamie, maybe you can go over a couple of the couple of points on charitable giving. Yeah, absolutely. So this week's column in, in the paper that I'm uh, working on, uh, or that just was published, uh, is all about charitable giving and five ways to really maximize your charitable giving the last two weeks of the year. And of course, the number one opportunity is the donation of appreciated securities. And again, not everything is down this year. In fact, I would suggest to you that if you didn't buy anything this year, you're probably up if you've been a long-term investor five, 10 years or more. So what I do every year and what I did last week myself personally was donate appreciated securities to registered charity. I use a donor advised fund, which is an alternative to using a private foundation, which allows me to put that money in there. I transfer it in in kind. I do it through my wood Gundy broker. And uh, he basically transfers that money directly. The in-kind actually just chooses the security that went up the largest over the last 15 years of our relationship. And he moved it over uh, in-kind to the charity account. Uh, And then I get a receipt for the fair market value of that donation. And I pay no capital gains tax whatsoever 
on basically a decade's worth of capital gains. So it's a wonderful opportunity for those gains. Uh, and also you have two weeks left to do it, right? And it takes a few days to get it done. There's some, you know, technical stuff. They actually have to move over the stock in kind. But if you're working with a big or large reputable charity, as I was, uh, they're used to this. They've got a one pager. I signed it and scanned it in and uh, it was all done within a, a few business days. So that's something definitely worth considering. Remember, December 31st is a deadline. It is a Saturday. So unless you're doing an online gift on the Saturday, you're going to want to make sure those donations are done maybe a few days before. And certainly if you're going to go with a gift in kind of securities where there's a bit more paperwork to do, give yourself a little bit extra time to get that done. Jamie, any one last tips you have? Yeah, again, we have the normal stuff, right? Like, uh, obviously, if you turn 71, you got to move your RSP into a RIF this year. Uh, if you happen to make a final RSP contribution, you don't have the normal 60-day deadline of March the 1st. you got to do it by December 31st. Certain expenses that you want to claim this year must be paid this year. I'm thinking of things about interest expense, deductible interest on margin loans or on, you know, deductible uh, investment expenses or business loans, things like that. Pay those by the end of the year. If you're doing medical expenses, you're using a calendar basis, any medical expenses that you want to claim this year, you want to pay them uh, sort of by the end of the year. And, um, you know, things like uh, looking at RSP TFSA withdrawals. So, for example, if you're going to take money out of your TFSA, and you're going to do so sometime next year, maybe to buy a home. Maybe you take it out in December uh, because then you're allowed to repay the amount that you've taken out the following calendar year, which is 2023. Whereas if you took out a TFSA withdrawal in January or February, you actually can't pay it back until 2024. So we're just telling people that if they need money in the short term from their TFSA, maybe take it out in the last couple of weeks of December. That gives you an opportunity to repay it should you get that money back uh, sometime in 2023 rather than 2024. Of course, all these ideas that Jamie, Rob, and myself have been talking about, make sure you get proper tax advice and speak to your financial advisor as well before you execute any of these, tra- these strategies. But put it, put it all in place. Tax saving is still available in the last two weeks. Make sure you, you get that done. Jamie Golenbeck, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Happy holidays. Well, Rob, you know, taxes are a big concern. Um, people want to look at ways to reduce their tax loads. So they can have more money to spend in their retirement. And we're going to talk about that at our upcoming seminar. On Tuesday, January 24th, 7 p.m. live at the Silver Springs Golf and Country Club. You do need to register for that, so go to morethanmoneyradio.com. Well, that does another edition of More Than Money. On behalf of Rob Gary, myself, Faisal Carmelli, thank you for joining us. You're listening to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada.